On this episode, Williams caught cheating in Daytona. Pimp My Ride is back. A five-year wait time for the Toyota Sienna. The Integra gets the single letter treatment. Mobile chop shops in the UK. And GM says internal combustion has another run in it. Finally, we'll wrap up with a segment. The kidnapping of the godfather of Formula One. Let's start the show. This thing is a freaking monster. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John, and let's go under the hood. Williams Racing is finally winning races, but not without bending the rules. There was some drama in sim racing once again this week uh, during the Daytona 24. So iRacing hosted the Daytona 24 online, um, and there were some rules set uh, during practice runs, even before that, for this competition that Williams had trouble adhering to. So the first one being um, that you could not use the apron um, in the infield at Daytona to gain time. Um, Williams didn't do this during practices, but it turns out that in the actual competition, they were. And the funny part is they actually were streaming the drivers, right? The Williams drivers were streaming themselves as they're going through here. But whenever they were on that apron, they cut to the shot of the driver and away from the screen. So it, it seems very intentional. Um, and it turns out it sort of was with what we get once we touch on that in a little bit. Um, uh, a lot of, of your sort of privateer, uh, racers in the sim world are sort of up in arms about this because Williams Racing did end up winning as a result. But this wasn't the only thing they were caught doing. And you've got to realize on the sim, it's not like racing live where there are camera shots you have to rely on. When you're playing a sim, literally every single car has full footage of them on the track at any given point. So it's pretty easy to look up these things and see what was going on. Williams was also using damaged and lapped cars to gain an advantage. So uh, one of the uh, Williams drivers' car was damaged. It had been lapped already. And what they were shown to be doing is waiting at the pit. So they would wait at the pit for one of their teammates to come around um, and then they would uh, go out on track to help them either, you know, tow them through the track or even uh, hold up other drivers, which was the most surprising part. They would sort of get in the way. Um, they wouldn't let off uh, when a faster car was coming by, when it was ready to pass. Um, and, and that's wild because this is a lapped car, right? There's no chance of this car actually winning at this point right or making up those three four five six whatever many laps they were lapped so it's just very intentional and i think it's um it's hard it's hard to call it cheating per se right because the system you're playing on sort of allows it but these were so a lot of these rules especially the first one with using the apron those are rules that were set ahead of time now um, you know, it, it's the only consequence for doing this is the driver gets banned for a week, but they, Williams still got to keep their pole position. They still got to keep their victory despite doing these things. And I think it's a little strange that you would ban a driver, which means there's clearly some 
activity that goes against the rules going on, but you don't take away the wins from the team that's doing that, you know, alleged cheating. Um, it's at the very least unsportmanlike conduct, I would say. Um, I know with driving, it's just very competitive and you want, you got to do anything to get an edge. I get it. Um, and there's a, there's always been a cheating component to racing, right? In one way or another, you're always trying to bend the rules. There's stories about this. I mean, the OEMs do it like Toyota's gotten caught doing it with turbos and, and all this stuff. But, um, I, I think if you get caught, you have to live with the consequences. I get, you know, trying to get an edge, but I also get dealing with the consequences. And in this case, it just doesn't seem like Williams is getting any consequences. Now, <clears throat> as <clears throat> as this was bubbling up, there was, you know, a lot of frustration in the community, obviously. So the team manager issued a statement, and the statement reads, I understand the point in frustration but as an esports team, we have an obligation to win races for the partners and the brands that we invest in. If the games allow, if the game allows it, we take it, or we get outplayed by those that do it to us. Really, the game needs to be stricter. This really only added fuel to the fire because one, it says, okay, we're doing it and we're doing it on purpose, right? Because they're they're letting us basically. That's what that's what they're saying. So. Everybody's like, well, no, you, you, you're the only one doing it. You're the only one, you know, showing this. And and the and it's it's understandable if let's say, uh, you know, your car one and two, your teammates, your car one and two, and you're helping each other, you know, by towing or you know playing more defensively, whatever it may be. But if you're having a car wait out in the pits for you to come around, then you jump in. You have no chance of victory. Yeah, technically, it's not really cheating. It's just sort of using an advantage. Uh, but man, that's that's such a grimy way to win. Um, I, I don't know. That's a very like, you know, that victory has an asterisk on it as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it, it's just I, I don't know. I, I Let me know your thoughts. Right. Uh, DM us or just you know, comment on our page once we post this uh, episode. Um, you know, what do you think? Is it cheating or not? I, I personally think it it's a bit of a stretch calling it cheating, but at the very least, unsportmanlike conduct. Uh, is it worth stripping the uh, victories? I don't know. I mean, now you're going to have to let everybody else race this way, right? Not open up the apron. Um, you know, everyone's going to, put in multiple cars with the intention of like, let's say two of those four cars you enter being used just to gain an advantage for the, the other cars, the faster cars. I don't know. It adds too many variables. I don't think it's worth it. We'll see where this goes. I think the, the biggest thing here that I'm noticing now is that sim as sim racing has started to grow, get more competitive, right? Gain a significant, significant community of people. There are pages, YouTubes, dedicated just to sim racing now. Um, and now, as it getting as it's getting more serious, and there's more money going into the sport, it's starting to get a lot more controversial, and it's starting to feel a lot like actual racing in some cases. The actual driving doesn't feel like actual racing, but the drama does. It's just sort of like a drive to survive for sim racing um that's kind of how it feels right i mean and with these teams professional williams teams performing like this it really only tells the community like hey 
this is what you've got to do to win, right? This is you, you've got to take it where you can get it. We're fine with a with a player being banned as long as it means victory for ourselves and our brands because we have a commitment to to bring money to bring dollars i don't know i don't know i'm not a fan of those type of situations but but it's cool that there's money being injected into sim racing and it's just a another arm of the car world that's growing and expanding and you love to see it despite these growing pains but let's get into our next headline mtv brought back pink Pimp My Ride. It's back, but only in the UK, and it's only on YouTube, and some owners are not happy already. So there's some – the the difference between when Pimp My Ride was around the first time around with Exhibit um, and now is that social media is, is in full force. We can get real-time – actual feedback from everybody involved immediately before you weren't really going to hear about those drivers the owners of those cars you weren't really going to hear about them but now we do and so we're getting a lot of news in real time from a lot of these people receiving their cars and i think this is like episode four or five that they're into and they already got drama so pit my ride uk it's still being made by mtv but it's only on YouTube, so it looks like they're trying sole internet content for now. Uh, the shop isn't West Coast Customs, of, uh, of course. It's Wrench Studios in the UK. Unfortunately, we don't have X to the Z exhibit as a host. It is Lady Leisure, if you're familiar. And it's the exact same show, just with different people. I mean, it's it's produced exactly the same. Uh, it's the same, you know, sort of bad acting, uh, but it's charming. And, you know, they go around the, the horn and they're like, oh, well, I'm going to put some sweet fenders on this. I'm going to do the interior really nice. I'm going to put a TV here. They put a sewing machine in this one. Um, but that's sort of where the drama starts. So um, the car in this instance was a Ford KA, which we don't have out here. It's like a, it's like it's a really it's like almost like a Mazda 2. It might be a Mazda 2. But it's that small, that size. And the owner, Yaz, uh, who's 24, she receives the car. And on the show, she looks very excited. And you can see this on YouTube. She looks very excited. She's kind of has this, I mean, she is speechless. And a lot of the times when I saw people react like that on Pimp My Ride, I always wondered, like, are they actually happy? Or are they very unhappy but don't want to show that for the cameras? So that's why they're speechless. Who knows? Because in some instances, the... The modifications were suspect. But anyway, so she's she seems really excited. She's asking to be taken through the car. She asked to see the inside almost immediately. So she goes to see the inside. They did the inside in like some uh, recycled denim. And it was like secondhand recycled denim and vegan leather. Um, that's how they did the interior. They put a TV in there, all this stuff. But after all, after the shock wore off, I think, Yaz took to social media and she started posting what she didn't like about the car. Um, so she asked for no tacky stickers and no lack, no loud exhaust. And they put a sticker. It, it's like it, it was like a racing stripe, like a single stripe down the middle. But it's got a design on it to make it look like it's stitched. So 
She took that as a tacky sticker, immediately removed it. But the worst part is that they added a, they added a really loud exhaust to it, which she said was extremely embarrassing, and she had to pay to remove it. I mean, a lot of these people aren't car people. They're not going to really have the resources to do these things themselves. I mean, that's why they're putting these things on, on this show. And now she's having to pay a different shop to put the exhaust back to stock, despite her asking asking them not to do that. So it's I don't know. I guess there's, there isn't a lot of communication between driver and producers in this case. And the producers don't really care, right? They just, they just want to put a car together, show it, wrap the video up, post it on YouTube, and hopefully it does well. Now, they also added an alleged flat-screen TV in the back, but it turns out that it was just a computer monitor that didn't work. Like. <laughs> I mean, and on and the funny part is that on the show, I don't think they even really show it. Probably because it didn't work. But yeah, you don't. They don't even make a mention of a TV. But she claims, and she showed it. They added a TV, and it's really just a computer monitor hooked up to nothing. Like even the power is not hooked up. <laughs> oh man, I guess that's how that's how content is, right? You got to like fake like fifty percent of it. I don't know, um, but. They could at least make it work. Like, plug it into a phone, right? Like, it's not hard to at least make it look like it's working on the show. But, I mean, I guess it would still be a lie. But, yeah, it was just a computer monitor. She didn't even get a flat-screen TV. And she did like the interior. She mentioned that, that she was happy that she had a second-hand denim interior. Uh, it was vegan leather. Like, she's a, you know, climate activist-type person. Now, um, where it gets interesting is that soon after uh, her receiving her car, and this is in the UK, it's wet, it's cold, there was a ton of mold growing in her car. Now, in the, in the, in the post, she claims that the mold is from them cutting hood vents into the car, which they did do, and that she believed that condensation was entering through there. That doesn't really make a lot of sense because there's a firewall. Um, so I, I don't think that would happen. But I think what did happen is this secondhand denim. Like wherever it was, it might have been stored in some sort of uh, uh, warehouse where it's like cold. And, and I mean, this is secondhand stuff. People have already mo uh, worn it. There was probably mold on this denim. And uh, in the actual episode, they show them pull pulling off all the molding, all the weather sealing of the car. So I think the weather sealing wasn't put together well, back together well, because it's 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 actually very difficult to put like trim pieces and molding and all that stuff to put that back well, like it was from the factory. You have to do that with care and, and intention to do that appropriately if they just slapped it all back together that ceiling is probably not actually ceiling so i'm thinking that's what happened so that's how the the moisture got in and the secondhand denim you know already being worn probably sitting in some warehouse that's what caused the mold so now she has to figure out how to uh you know clean out the mold in that car and i really think it's going to require a whole new upholstery because it is bad i mean it was the way she showed it it was a giant petri dish it was horrible to look at <laughs> that sucks though i mean imagine you're like super excited 
you're not, you know, think of it from a perspective like a mainstream consumer, right? You're not a car guy. Think of it from that perspective. You're not really familiar with modding cars, but you like the idea of having, you know, a more customized car, a car that looks a little cooler, this and that. MTV, a giant media corporation, shows up and says, hey, we're going to mod your car for free. We're going to pimp your ride, and you're going to love it. Tell us what you like. You know, and then we'll incorporate that into the car. And what you get back is a car that maybe 80% of the modifications you hate. And the only one you like, the only modification you like that was the interior, turns out it goes moldy uh, after a few weeks of you owning the car. That sucks. You know, this probably added an expense to this driver that she wouldn't have had otherwise. <sighs> God, I, I really hope she gets her situation settled, but I wouldn't count on MTV actually paying for it. Let's go into our next headline. So if you want a Toyota Sienna, you're going to have to wait five years, at least if you're in Canada. So if you're Canadian, I can confirm this here uh, at a local dealer. But in the U.S., I think things are a little better. But if you're Canadian, man, you've got some wait times. So a local buyer actually posted estimated wait times from a Toyota dealer in Canada. And the numbers are, they don't even make sense to me, right? So a Prius, the wait time is one to one and a half years. A Corolla, and this is the sedan, 10 to 12 months. A Corolla hatchback, one to one and a half years. And a Supra, one to one and a half years. Now this is where it gets even more interesting. A Sequoia is three plus years uh and a tundra is two plus years with the sienna coming in at the top with five plus years who is going to wait five years for a sienna one right number two do you get like the 2023 sienna that is five years old or do you get a 2028 sienna I would imagine it's a 2028 Sienna, but it's just that these wait times don't really make a lot of sense. And there isn't really a lot of information posted outside of just the wait list periods. There, but a lot of people were commenting that this is pretty much true in Canada. And some people are waiting, you know, uh, two years for uh, like a RAV4 uh, for their Tundras. And and that's that's insane. I mean, the market is still really, really hot. And I thought it had softened a little bit. Maybe the used car market is softening a little bit, but the used car market is definitely not. And if you want to get a GR Corolla, you're SOL. There are no orders for a GR Corolla, which means that they couldn't even give it a five plus year wait time like the Sienna. Right. You you either get a regular Corolla hatch in one year or one to one and a half years, or you come to the US, U.S. to get one. I don't even know how the import laws work from, you know, moving a car the U.S. to Canada. I know Canada to the U.S. is a little harder since we can't get, they, they have a better 15-year rule versus our 25-year rule to import cars. But uh, this is insane. I, I didn't realize the wait times were actually this significant. Now, these are estimates, right? I mean, it could be that things fall in and out of these numbers. You know, it's just an estimate that the dealership has come up with. But five plus years for a van, man, that's uh, that sucks. 
mostly families. I think Honda's winning out in this case. So with the Odyssey, I wonder, you know, what the wait time for the Odyssey is. We don't have these wait times out here. The wait times are significant. I would say they do might go to one and a half years for most, like most performance cars. But for like regular regular cars, I don't think you're waiting three plus, five plus years, uh, for a car. It, it, and it's just, I mean, they, I wish they would put an explanation. Like, what does that five plus actually mean? Because it's, um, I don't know why anyone would wait for five plus years. But yeah, I mean, this does impact the used car market. So if you're waiting, you know, one and a half years for a car that you need now, you're more likely to go over to buy cars in the used car market. Now, um, that doesn't really include a lot of the cars that we're that I'm probably talking about, right? A lot of the used cars that I'm talking about are now becoming collector's items for whatever reason. 90s cars are blowing up. Uh, but yeah, you'd probably get like a 2016 Sienna instead from somewhere instead of buying a brand new one or, or waiting five years to get one. It's insane. Um, you know, hopefully these issues start going away soon because man, it's, it's, uh, it's really screwing with the consumer at this point. Now I can say a pretty confident, confidently that you all hated the new Integra, right? I, it, it was I mean, within the car community, it wasn't met with a lot of love. Let's just say that. But what about the Type S? So the 2024 Integra Type S is making its North American debut at the Rolex 24 Hours at Daytona. By this, by the time this airs, it has already actually debuted. Now, um, it is a prototype of their up, upcoming Integra Type S, and it's going to serve as a lead vehicle for the Daytona 24 which is a highly prestigious race now they are going to have a special camouflage on it uh so you're not really going to see it you know without its camouflage which is kind of dumb i mean why like why why do that well i guess they want to generate excitement for it so i guess in that case it does make sense um it is going to be powered by what i believe is essentially the k20c1 from the fl5 civic uh, which is a two-liter VTEC turbo engine. Uh, it's going to have a little over 300 horsepower. It's going to come with a six-speed manual and an LSD. Uh, more details on the Integra Type S will be sh will be shared closer to summer um, of this year. Uh, but there are people speculating um, that it's going to land in like the 45k to 50k price tag mark, and that doesn't really make a lot of sense for me to me i mean that's that's a lot of money for an integra like you can get a i mean for a little more you're getting a supra you can get the i mean that's probably the new type s sort of uh, the new type r civic type r sort of lands there i guess and this is supposed to be sort of the luxury version of what the Type R is. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if I can justify 50K. Now, I might be stuck in like old, you know, 2000s numbers because I, most cars are costing this at this point. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, you're for a, for a performance car, it's brand new. It's going to be hard to spend less than $50,000. Um, I mean, the Miata, 
if you can count it, the type R might slide under there. Uh, I guess the GR Corolla should be sliding under there. Um, and that's where I would put the Integra Type S. So I don't know uh, what the intention is here. Now, this is all speculation in terms of the price. It's not at what it's been set in stone. Uh, Acura hasn't even released that yet. But it, I don't know. At this price point, I don't think it will do that well. And um, just a reminder that the current Acura Integra was the 2023 and is the 2023 North American Car of the Year. I don't know about you guys, but I haven't seen one on the road. And, I mean, out here in California, people like their cars, so you see them a lot. But I haven't seen one on the road yet. Um, I don't know how it got the North American Car of the Year. I mean, this could be an award that, I mean, doesn't mean too much. I don't know. Um, I'm not familiar with all these awards. There is a lot of them. But, yeah, that's uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. At SEMA this year, there was only one that I, that I, maybe two, but I only remember one that was there and it was parked outside. There was no, no one around it at any given point that I saw it. I wasn't there all 24 hours watching the car, but it just didn't drum up a lot of excitement. Um, and at $50,000, that is going to be, people are going to be even less excited than they are now. So we'll see. Um, like I said, it's going to be a camouflage version that we see at Daytona. So you're not really going to be able to make out all of it. You'll see sort of the silhouette and if it's cool or not, but I'd be interested to see once they actually release the final version, what it looks like, what it comes with, what it's capable of. Because if it has a $50,000 price tag, it's really going to have to come with a lot. A lot, a lot. But anyway, let's get into our next headline. Chop shops are sort of a thing of the past now compared to how it used to be, right? Um, I knew people in like my high school that ran chop shops, and that's how they afforded their cars. It was – I worked at a pizza place. Um, and there was another guy that worked there who would, would tell me countless stories of the people that he'd hang out with um, that would strip a car overnight and dump the frame somewhere. We had recently on the podcast uh, talked about a Honda Civic that was stolen from a close family friend um, and it was completely stripped and the body was left primered and upside down uh, in the middle of nowhere in like Riverside. So um, they exist at some level out here, but not as much as uh, as you'd hear about it before. But it looks like now chop shops are becoming ambulatory and we're having chop parking lots. Now, this is not in the U.S., but in the U.K., a Citroen C1 was stripped for parts while the owner was at a concert. So the car was parked at 9 p.m., and the driver returned at 11.30 p.m. to find the whole front end of the car completely stripped. When the driver got close to the car, they thought it looked funny and it assumed it was the lighting um, that was sort of messing with what she was seeing. And, but that's not the case. As she got closer, she realized that the whole front clip was gone. And there's pictures 
The hood was gone, the fenders, the bumpers, hubcaps. They smashed a window to get the car open. Now, they didn't completely chop it. The engine was intact. I mean, it was still there. They really just made out with the front clip, um, which is crazy. Uh, so two hours is sort of plenty of time. I have to assume that they were sort of casing her, and they they saw when she parked and then realized how much time they had. Because uh, two and a half hours, right? 9 p.m. to 11.30, that's not a long time. But to get a, a, a hood off, some fenders, the bumper, they probably tore some stuff. They took the hubcaps. Those are easy to pull. I mean, you could realistically do that in like half an hour. Um, an hour if you want to keep everything intact. So, I mean, it, it definitely tracks. The car has since been repaired and is back on the road. Uh, but the driver, of course, she was very upset. Uh, she was like, I have not even done paying for this car yet. It's my baby. That would suck if you walked out of your Bad Bunny concert and then all of a sudden you look and your whole front clip is gone. And I, I would say it's probably easier uh, for our cars because we've taken ours off so many times. I think the the E92 definitely uh, I always put together exactly as OEM. But the E36, I mean, it's down to like two bolts at this point. I mean, it really only has four. But yeah, it's down to like the minimal uh, but it's not street driven anymore, so I guess it doesn't really matter. But yeah, I mean these thieves are are running in and out. I mean the catalytic converter guys, right there, it's like two min, not even two minutes, right? It's seconds that they take to steal catalytic converters. So theft is becoming ambulatory at this point. I mean, and I think uh, I guess it's it makes sense that these popular cars out there in UK are the ones that are you know getting parts stolen and with supply chains issues. There's a big demand for everything. But in this case, you know, what are the chances that it was just like this isn't even an actual thief or of course they're a thief, but like a professional thief that and they're actually just some guy that got in a wreck like they were on their phone, ran their car into the back of somebody else, didn't want to have it go through the insurance, paid out the other person. I don't know how insurance rules work, work in the U.K., but then he decided, oh, I'm going to have to get I'll just replace these parts myself and fix it myself and realize when he went to go order the parts that none of them were available. So he was like, I'm going to go steal these parts at, at this concert while the attendee is there for two and a half hours. That might be a bit of a stretch. I don't know. It's possible. I don't know. It's possible. But let's get into our last headline. GM states. What we all love, ice must live on, at least for now. And they said it in 854 million different ways. GM is spending $854 million to build a new small block V8. Now, they haven't provided a release timeline or any technical details on the motor, but $579 million is going to Flint for blocks, cranks, and heads, uh, and to assemble completed motors. $216 million is going to Bay City, Michigan, to build camshafts, rods, blocks, and heads. $47 million goes to Ohio to make block castings. And $12 million goes to Rochester, New York, to build intake manifolds and fuel rails. So this is a massive, massive investment. We likely won't see this motor for... 
a few years. Um, but it means that the future does remain icy, right? It's it's we're we're getting a new motor, new development for a new motor. I think by consumer laws, they have to legally make parts for this new motor. Maybe not new motor or new car. I'll have to uh, confirm this, but. I know at the very least for a new car, they have to uh, provide parts for the next like 10 or 15 years. So when they release this motor, they're planning to continue producing parts and support it for at least the next 10 or 15 years. So I, there's a future in which ICE is still very much present. Now, environmentalists, of course are very mad um so they're claiming that the massive investment that they have put now doesn't line up with the goals that they had to be 100 percent electric by 2035 now i think it still does because i think gm what gm and most companies are stating is that their fleets will be 100 percent elective electric by 2035 we do know that gm is known for making like crate motors and things like that. So maybe they still plan on continuing that side of the business while they're 100% electric. But then also this 100% electric for 2035, it's aspirational, right? It's I don't think it's like a goal that's set in stone. It's something they want to work towards, and they have been with Stellantis and their big EV investment. It might not be going as fast as environmentalists would like. Maybe we're not and 2035 maybe when 2040 when this happens but they're working towards it and i think it's still pretty cool that they're making an investment in ice as well because i mean there's still a community of people who are interested in these in these motors right and um the problem with ev that a lot of people haven't talked about <clears throat> is that um the infrastructure to travel with an EV vehicle, let's say across country or during or, or across a significant distance, isn't there yet. Um, and, and like a lot of car YouTubers, EV YouTubers, uh, like EV news outlets, right, don't really talk about this. And I didn't really know about it until recently. It wasn't until I saw an episode of Rich Rebuilds in which he actually uh, buys a um, a Rivian. It's one of the Rivian trucks. And he has to drive it down the East Coast uh, or up the East Coast, but up, and, up or down the East Coast, I forget. And the issues as he was encountering is that he had pretty much range anxiety almost the entire way. Um, there were... There were uh, markers on um, to uh, for chargers that either weren't there or something sometimes they encounter in a lot of uh, areas just regular cars parked in those spots um, because not a lot of people even use them in those areas right and they're just so spread out far apart that it's really you have to plan your commute around these chargers and it isn't that you're just waiting there you know, for, you know, five minutes to fill up and then you go. In some cases, this is hours, right? And in some cases, the chargers that are available aren't superchargers. They're, you know, they charge very slowly and therefore you have to spend a lot of time there to get any miles into your car. 
So it, it was obvious. I mean, it's only a, a single test case, right, with with just one trip. But it really demonstrating demonstrated sort of the lack of infrastructure for EV across the nation to be able to support this. So for some time, we're going to have to continue investing in ICE vehicles. And it's advantageous to do, to do so because the infrastructure is there. Therefore, if the infrastructure is there, the demand is going to stay there. People are going to use um uh gasoline powered ve- vehicles and it's it's it, change takes a while it's hard to really make considerations for an ev car considering that even in california i mean i've i've had this thought like okay it maybe it'll make a lot of sense to to get an ev daily right and just use that for driving to work or whatever but looking into the range and the things you have to deal with, remembering to plug in your car every night, you know, that it's, you know, the cables. I'm also very, I, I, I love cable management. I, I hate seeing cables. If everything in my life could be wireless, that'd be great. But that's not the case. And I would have to pl- plug in this car, install some sort of uh, Tesla rig in my house to be able to charge faster. I mean, it, it's, it's a whole thing. Um, and now we're getting to a point where studies are coming out that, the cost savings of using power, using EV electric power, aren't that significant anymore and are now getting in some places on par with what you're paying with gasoline. So um, it's sort of losing a case uh, for now, other than, you know, it being a lot better for the environment. Yes, we're going to get there eventually, but I think we still need to work we still need to balance the investment in one or the other. It isn't that we can put all our marbles into EV and continue moving in that direction. It just doesn't make sense from a business standpoint for a lot of these businesses. And if the people want it, that's where you know we get a little in trouble, right? If the people want to invest in buying ICE cars, then the companies are going to make them. So maybe these environmentalists need to focus their attention on convincing people to move away from ICE cars and move over to EV if they really want to make a dent in this. Because that's that's in in the business, demand is going to drive what you make, right? If the people want it, you're going to make it because you can profit it. You can profit from it. I'm just happy that uh, GM is still investing in ICE because uh, it could set the example for other companies to continue investing. Because it's what I know. I'm not. I'm not like, you know. I'm not completely against EV. Um, I think EV has a place, uh, but it's just nice to see that there's still an investment in the internal combustion motor. But that, uh, those are your headlines for this week. Now let's move into our segment for this week, the kidnapping of the godfather of Formula One. Now, if you're not familiar who the godfather of Formula One is, his name is Juan Manuel Fangio, and he's Argentinian. He has two nicknames, El Maestro, because he was so, so dominant in his time, and also El Chueco, which means he was bow-legged, so he's sort of messed up in some way, and this is very, in sort of the Latino-Hispanic tradition, nicknames always pick on what would normally be considered your worst attribute, which it's it's funny. Um, it's funny. It's just it's always existed and it continues to exist. I mean, this guy was from the 40s and he had this nickname. Now, Juan Manuel Fangio made his debut in 1938 
in the Argentinian Turismo Carretera, and, and he made it in a Ford V8. By 1940, he had moved into a Chevy and become the Turismo Carretera champion. So it took him two years to jump out, jump over into being a championship in a champion, but his driving was so legendary, right? He actually undertook the Gran Premio del Norte, which is a race that is six thousand two hundred and fifty miles long. The race starts in Buenos Aires, moves through the Andes Mountains to Bolivia, to Lima, Peru, and then back back to Buenos Aires. And this is 15 days it's a 15 day race the conditions include it's hot and dry desert insect insect ridden jungles with crushing humidity i mean you're you're going from dry desert heat to humidity and mosquitoes um, it's freezing cold sometimes some of the mountain passes are filled with snow and you've got a thousand foot cliff drops um and a lot of times in complete darkness so you got like extremely high altitudes, thousand foot drops, total darkness, really just relying on your headlights in a lot of cases. And it's a mixture of dirt roads and paved roads. You're not just on a paved road the entire time. Now, early in the race, Fangio hit a boulder and broke his drive shaft. So he had to replace it in the next town. And then later in Bolivia, a local crashed into his car, bent an axle, and then he and his co-driver had to fix it overnight. Following that, a fan blade got loose, wrecked the radiator, and then had to be sort of cleverly repaired so they can make it to the next town and repair it uh, indefinitely or definitely. They drove 150 miles through like blistering heat with no water, like no water at all. And during night stints, their headlights would fall off. So they had to use neckties uh, from the co-driver. Luckily, the co-driver wore a necktie. Um, to hold the headlight in. I mean, you're, you're driving through complete darkness. You need this light. The weather in the mountains was so cold. <laughs> and this is hilarious. It's kind of romantic. Fangio drove with his co-driver's arms around him for hours. This man had to drive through these conditions with somebody hugging him. He had to drive while somebody was hugging him. To make it through the race because it was just so cold. Imagine being that cold that you're willing to put up someone hanging off of you like a monkey while you are racing a car. That is extremely impressive. And even more impressive that despite everything I've just told you, he got back to Buenos Aires and realized that he had won this race. Despite all that. I mean, it's extremely te treacherous and more than likely everybody on this grid experienced some form of this adventure but that's crazy that a 15-day race you're experiencing all these things the car is almost breaking completely you're doing stints with your uh, co-driver hugged around you uh just to make it through the circuit because it's so so cold i mean this is it's it's like this is sort of like the climbing mount everest of races uh, in terms of how treacher treacherous it is. And at that time, you know, safety isn't what it is now. I'm sure it was a lot more lax and therefore a lot more opportunity for danger. But, I mean, it just sort of speaks to his legend, right, of what he's capable of doing through any adversary, adversary when it comes to driving. Now, he did continue uh, his career. He won world championship of drivers five times. 
a record that stood for 46 years until Schumacher beat it. But what's crazier is that he won it five times with four different teams. Alfa Romeo, he won it with Ferrari, he won it with Mercedes, and Maserati. So he's like the LeBron of racing, or LeBron is the Fangio of basketball. I mean, I, I guess he wasn't cha- Fangio wasn't chasing rings, but he wasn't really committed to any team. He was like, I'll win with you, I'll win with you, I'll win with you. And I mean, that's it sort of becomes undeniable, right, at that point that it's, of course, the race team will always have something to do with how well the car does. But this does speak a lot to Fangio's legend in that he could get in any car by anyone and win, right? I mean, it's there's not a lot of people that can say that, and it's very, very impressive. And I like this bit more than anything, right? Because it sort of it sort of gives me it gives, it tells me that I have a chance, right? Fangio was the oldest driver in most F1 races, and his Grand Prix career didn't really start until he was in his late 30s, which means I've still got a few years. Unlikely that in uh, Formula One, um, you know, a 38 plus rookie it will be seen but it's uh it's cool to see that Fangio did it at least he did it in the in the 40s so for all of you out there you know um if was it 25 to 38 you know that are thinking that it's too late it's not make sure make sure you hit the track and get your seat time you could end up in f1 now for the lead there was a point in his career in which Fangio was actually kidnapped. And this is all part of racing, right? Dude, he was kidnapped due to racing, meaning racing put him in the situation in which he would be kidnapped. In 1957, the president of Cuba, which is uh, Fulgencio Batista of Cuba, he established the non-Formula One Cuban Grand Prix in Havana. Fangio won the event in 1957, and then set the fastest times during practice for the 1958 race. He was ready to win another. It was obvious he was going to win another. But on February 23rd, two of Fidel Castro's men entered uh, Fangio's hotel in Havana and kidnapped him. Batista, the president of Cuba, ordered that the race continue as usual, and the police were ordered to hunt down the kidnappers. They set up roadblocks at intersections, Guards were assigned to private and commercial airports and to all competing drivers. So security was raised up like 18,000 notches. Fangio, at, uh, in the meantime, was taken to three separate houses. The nappers let him listen to the race on the radio and even bought him a TV to watch post-race, co- post-race coverage. In the third house, Fangio was given his own bedroom, but... There was a guard standing outside the door 24-7, so he couldn't escape. Nothing was going to happen. I mean, they had him for what seems like three days uh, at this point. Um, And the kidnappers' motives were to cancel the race and embarrass the Batista regime in support of their revolution. He was released. Actually, he was actually released after about a day and a half. Um, It wasn't three days. He was released after about a day and a half, um, and the Cuban Revolution took over the government in 1959, and by 1959, the 1959 Grand Prix was then canceled. So now the godfather of Formula One stands as one of only two winners of the Cuban Grand Prix. 
in the year that he was kidnapped, of course he wasn't allowed to race. Sterling Moss won the race uh, thanks to Fidel Castro. So Sterling Moss can actually thank Fidel Castro for winning the race. Who knows? I mean, Fangio looked set up to win it again, uh, but Sterling Moss uh, took it as a result of him being kidnapped for 29 hours as part of a political ploy to move the, the current regime. That's wild. It's crazy how, uh, you know, how motorsports gets intertwined with politics in some of these cases. Um, it looks like it worked. Uh, it didn't work for shutting down the Grand Prix immediately, but they did end up shutting it down later. It did come back for one more year in 1960 in which Sterling Moss won it again. So really, that's there's currently only two winners of the Cuban Grand Prix in Havana, which is Fangio and Sterling Moss, forever in the history books as the godfather of Formula One and the only Formula One driver, as far as I know so far, that has been kidnapped as part of a political ploy and prevented another victory in a race that he was undoubtedly set to win. It's wild. Uh, it's it's wild to me. This guy has such an amazing story. I'm surprised there isn't like a full movie on his life. Uh, the amount of victories he had, uh, you know, throughout his career, and still, I believe, has the highest winning percentage in F1 with 46.15 percent. Um, you know, it's it's uh, the legend of Fangio. I think it rings a lot within F1 people, but I think if you love cars. He's a person that I would definitely put in your history bank and make sure that you uh, you know what humans are capable of in terms of what he was doing. Because, I mean, this is he's doing this and sometimes with no helmets in cars that are like soapboxes. I mean, it's not the technology we have now. So it's amazing to, to hear all this. Now, I mean, it's of course, we didn't see it. We're hearing it secondhand for the most part. Some of this stuff has become legend and therefore becomes exaggerated. But for the most part, man, what I've looked up, everything I've told you today, this is exactly how it happened. Uh, and it's it's wild to think. It's wild to think that he was kidnapped. Like th that, The plan to take down an entire government would say, hey, you know what? Juan Manuel Fangio is the dopest driver we have. they have right now. If we take him... They'll have to shut down the race, and it's over. They're not going to race it without him. They take him. They decide to move forward, kind of puts a wrench in things, but they still end up being successful later. That's crazy. Um, hopefully nothing like this ever happens and none of us get kidnapped, but it's wild for Juan Manuel. And he, he actually described it as just another adventure. He didn't want to get involved in the politics of it all, which makes sense. That's the smart move. Uh, but he said if, if kidnapping me... Um, was done for good of the Cuban people, then that's fine with him. Um, that's up for debate. That's up to, you know, I would say Cubans at this point uh, to decide if that was worth it or not. But it's pretty wild that, uh, that he ended up being embroiled in that political movement. Well, that is our episode. And you can find us at 91octane.com. That is all letters, no numbers. Also like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podca podcast. Follow us on Instagram at 91octane. And, um, you know, uh, like, subscribe, uh, follow at all the outlets, right? You know, appreciate you engaging with us. All the support um, that we've gotten, that I've gotten up to this point has been amazing. 
all your comments keep me driving forward um which you know i can't i can't appreciate that enough so thank you thank you thank you so much and uh we'll talk next week bye